You are listening to the God Archie Podcast, where we shove a crowbar between state and church. This is the spot where Christian faith intersects with libertarian anarchism and voluntarism. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, we're going to talk about Pilate, the politician. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the God Archie Podcast, as always. I thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. Today, I'm going to be doing a solo episode. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some things I've been learning in my study of Matthew. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been um, looking at Jesus' trial, particularly his interactions with Pilate, and there's a lot to dig into, a lot of lessons about political power and the political process and why we shouldn't trust it. So we'll dig into that here in just a moment. Um, It's been pretty crazy here at the Meharis. We definitely dodged a bullet here in the Tampa Bay area where I am uh, as far as Hurricane Ian goes. Uh, We actually, um, we did the prep. We were ready. Uh, Even got us to clean out our garage, which was uh, pretty good. We still had tons of boxes piled in the garage from our move. And we wanted to get both cars in so they would be out, you know, at least at least sheltered. And uh, so we spent a whole day basically cleaning out the garage. So I guess that was good. But again, we really dodged a bullet. Um, be in prayer for folks that are down in southwest Florida, Fort Myers, Sanibel Island, Pine Island, uh, Cape Coral, Naples, all of those areas just devastated. Our neighbor across the street lives in Fort Myers. Most of the time, he has a second house up here in Tarpon Springs. And uh, he showed me some video footage, and it's just it's just overwhelming. And um, so I would encourage you, if you have resources to give uh, to agencies that are helping out, that would be fantastic. Uh, the agency that I like best in terms of disaster release is UMCOR. It's the United Methodist I think it's the United Methodist Committee on Relief. And every dollar that you give to UMCOR ultimately goes to um, disaster relief. All of their overhead is already paid for. So if you're making a donation to UMCOR, you know that that money is being used to help people uh, in the disaster zones. So I will put a link on the show notes page to uh, UMCOR. A couple of little things that have struck me just in the last couple of days I wanted to touch on. First off, um, you know, a lot of you probably know I work for Shift Gold. Uh, I'm the editor of their website, particularly the, the news section of the website. And so I spend a lot of time writing about the Federal Reserve and finance and markets and economics. And I tell people all the time when it comes to economics, incentives matter. And we got a prime example of this the other day. Uh, Tyreek Hill, who is a wide receiver now playing for the Miami Dolphins, uh, was close to signing with the New York J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. And he flat out said the reason that he didn't sign with the Jets was the taxes in New York. And why would you? Why not come to Florida, play football, and not have to deal with the state income tax? So, you know, for anybody who doubts, these kind of economic incentives do, in fact, matter. And uh, and then I just wanted to touch also just on the warmongering. Um, I posted the other day uh, a song by Sting. 
Russians. It was on the Blue Dream of the Blue Turtles album, which was released, I think, in 85-ish. And uh, if you haven't listened to the song, I'll link it on the show notes page as well. But just talking about uh, the, the main verse is, I hope the Russians love their children too. Talking about how just absurd the idea of nuclear war is. And now it seems like people are like, oh, well, you know, we might have a nuclear war. No biggie. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's a biggie. <laughs> and, you know, I know that Putin has been belligerent, but the United States has absolutely no ground to stand on being the only country ever in history to actually use a nuclear weapon. So, you know, the moralizing and posturing falls a little bit flat there. But, um, you know, it would behoove all involved to figure out a way to negotiate. And that's one of the big problems you get in these situations. The United States is notorious for not wanting to negotiate. You know, it's our way or the highway, unconditional surrender, et cetera, et cetera. And um, quite frankly, I'd rather not fry in a nuclear explosion. And, you know, maybe it's partly because I'm an 80s kid. I remember, you know, I remember the movie uh, The Day After, that came out in 1983. Scared the crap out of me as a 16-year-old. Um, maybe we need to reshow that movie. But one thing that's just really poignant to me from that time period, my grandfather was the coordinator for Louisville, Kentucky's disaster uh, and emergency service. I Actually, I think it was, I can't remember the acronym. But anyway, it was emergency management, effectively. And... He took me to his office several times, and I remember when you went into his office, there was a big map on the wall, and it had little nuclear mushroom clouds over various cities and spots all across the United States, and there were little ones and big ones, and the bigger the mushroom cloud was, uh, was indicated that it was a higher target priority for the Russians. It really struck me, you know, we need to take this stuff seriously and... This idea that that and, and again, I'm not, I'm not absolving Putin. Putin's a sociopath, just like Biden is. All of these politicians are sociopaths. But as Americans, we need to encourage our government, and I'm, I don't really mean our government, the government that claims authority over us. We need to push as hard as we can for peace. We talked about it last uh, episode with Scott Horton. Um, as much as it's incumbent upon us, we need to fight for peace. And, uh, you know, this whole nuclear war thing is frightening. So, um, before we get into the main topic of the day, I want to tell you about my sponsor. Now, I don't know if you're a coffee drinker or not. I'm not a coffee drinker, but my wife She's a coffee drinker, and she got her first order of Fox & Sons coffee a couple of weeks ago, right after we did the uh, last episode. And so she ground it up, tried it out, and nodded her head and said, this is fantastic. So my wife, if she says it's fantastic, you can bet the farm that this coffee is fantastic. Fox & Sons. Um, this coffee's not going to dis appoint you. So if you visit foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com, you'll not only get delicious whole bean organically roasted coffee, you're also going to be supporting a very cool family business. 
Steve Fox developed his love for coffee as a kid going to work with his dad on Saturdays. And Steve says that he started this company both to honor his father and to pass on a business along with the spirit of entrepreneurship to his two sons. And uh, Steve is a Christian. He is um, uh, a libertarian, all around good guy, a good friend of mine. And uh, I'm just really happy that I can uh, support his business and his coffee. So check it out, foxandsons.com. And, you know, over here at Godarchy, we don't just send you off places empty-handed, right? You can save 10% off any order over $20 with the promo code Godarchy. So definitely check that out and uh, enjoy you. Enjoy you. Enjoy yourself some delicious Fox and Sons coffee. And one last thing before we dig into the show, Godarchy can use your support. There's two specific things that you can do to help build Godarchy, expand its reach, make it better. Number one, please share these episodes on your social media uh, platforms, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you're doing social media. Share the show. Share Godarchy articles and links with folks. More The more sharing that happens, the more the algorithms will show it to other people. So it's just an easy way, just a couple of clicks, help us to grow the show. And uh, I really appreciate that. Secondly, you can support Godarchy financially. Go to godarchy.org, hit support Godarchy, and you'll see uh, the options there to support the show financially on a monthly basis. Um, and again, we don't send you away empty-handed. Supporters get some cool, special access. Uh, we have a special content page for supporters. You'll get to uh, listen to our mudslide round with our guests. Those are fun questions uh, that folks answer. And additionally, uh, part of what we're collecting, part of the money that we get through our support, we're passing on to other organizations. Um, this month, I'm going to be sending a donation to UMCOR that I mentioned earlier um, on behalf of Godarchy. And so 40% of the support actually goes on to other organizations or folks in need. So please check that out. Definitely need your support. The more support that I get, the more time and energy that I can dedicate to this project. So check that out again, godarchy.org, support Godarchy. And uh, I will be very, very grateful and say thank you. Okay, so as I mentioned, I have been studying the book of Matthew for quite a while, actually. Um, my Bible study, the way I do it is um, I take very small pieces of text and get pretty in-depth. I've got a couple of Bible commentaries that go verse by verse, uh, you know, looking at everything from original language to uh, different manuscripts, historical background, all of these kinds of things. So uh, I've, I've actually been in Matthew for over two years now. Um, I don't do that study every single day, so that accounts for a little bit of this slowness as I kick the microphone. Um, but it's been a while, and I've finally gotten to the crucifixion narrative. And over the last couple of days, I've been um, looking at the verses where Jesus is before Pilate and uh, basically on trial. So setting it up, you know, Jesus is arrested in the garden. Um, he is taken before the Jewish authorities. 
the Jewish authorities do basically what is a sham trial and conclude that, you know, he's worthy of, uh, his crimes are worthy of death. Now, when you read that, it's very clear that they don't really have any basis for this, but they want to get rid of him. So they do the sham trial, uh, declare him guilty, and therefore have to take him to the Roman authorities because the Jews were not allowed to um, execute somebody. So it had to be done by the Romans. Um, And, you know, historical context at this time, Judea is under control of the Roman Empire. And it's it's kind of odd. There's there's a little bit of a um, a mixed government. And we'll get into that here in just a second. Uh, So to kind of set this up, I I wanted to talk a little bit about who Pilate was. I mean, Pilate was the, the quintessential Roman politician. He was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea. Um, He served under the emperor Tiberius, and he was in that position for about 10 years. Uh, There's a little bit of discrepancy on the date, but basically between 26 or 27 AD to 36 or 37 AD. Um, That was a long time to be in this position, by the way. Uh, Josephus, who is the Jewish historian and the Roman historian Tacticus, also mentioned Pilate um, and talk about him ordering the crucifixion of Christ. So it's not just in the Bible. There are some extra biblical references to this trial. Uh, And there's also some interesting archaeological slash historical evidence, um, including we have dated coins in the name of Emperor Tiberius that were minted during Pilate's governorship. And there's also a fragmentary short inscription uh, with Pilate's name on it. It's the only inscription about a Roman Roman governor of Judea uh, predating the Roman-Jewish wars. It's the only one like that to survive. So basically, the point being is that Pilate was a real person. There is um, there's historical evidence of his governorship. Now, according to Josephus, Pilate was ultimately removed from office because he violently suppressed an armed Samaritan uh, movement in uh, Mount Gerizim. Um, Pilate's official title was Perfect of Judea. So that term perfect implies a, a military position. But the troops under his command weren't really like soldiers in the true sense. It was more of a occupying police force. So they were there to keep the peace, um, hold down insurrections. Uh, in effect, Jerusalem and Judea were under a military um, uh, occupation. Uh, But of course, as the governor, he also had some civic duties. Uh, Those included running the judicial system. Uh, He had the power to collect taxes. He had the power to distribute funds. Uh, Now, as I mentioned, there was kind of a mixed government in Judea because the Romans allowed a certain degree of local control. Kind of federalism, I guess. Um, so Pilate, Pilate shared a limited amount of civil and religious power with the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was their kind of religious quasi-government body. And, and the Sanhedrin was uh, was very much a mix. It was it was religious, but it was also very political, um, and and it had significant sway over the population. Now, here's something that I found really interesting and I did not know. The Roman governor actually had the right to appoint the Jewish high priest. 
I had no idea that this was a thing. And my wife was asking, uh, did they have to choose from the priestly class? I'm assuming that they would. I, I don't think the Jewish the Jewish authorities would be okay with them just appointing anybody. But the bottom line is the governor had uh, some control over who was serving in the high priesthood. Now, interestingly, uh, Cephas was the high priest during the entirety of Pilate's tenure. Um, and Cephas was actually removed from the priest, uh, the, the, that position, after Pilate was removed from his position as governor. So that indicates that the two of them were probably pretty tight. And it seems that there was a great deal of cooperation um, and mutual backscratching going on between the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities, despite the fact that, by and large, the Jews weren't real thrilled with being occupied by this foreign army, as you can easily imagine. Now, modern historians have differing assessments of Pilate as far as his effectiveness as a ruler. Um, some believe that he was particularly brutal and ineffective, but there are others who believe that his long tenure in office probably implies that he was reasonably competent. Uh, of course, in politics, he could be brutal and reasonably, co reasonably competent at the same time. So, you know, maybe there's some truths on both sides of that. Regardless, we do know for sure that the Jews bristled under Roman occupation. There was always the threat of revolt. And this is extremely important in context with the Jewish conception of the Messiah. They were looking for a great military leader. They were looking for the second David who would take control and ultimately free Judea from this Roman yoke. Uh, so it was a very much an independence movement, and there was a large political movement within Jewish society known as the Zealots. And the Zealots were agitating for violent revolution to throw off the Romans. Now, of course, the Sanhedrin wasn't real big on that because, as we've kind of established, uh, they were in tight with the Roman government. There was a quid pro quo going on, and so the Sanhedrin enjoyed position and power uh, along with the Roman government. But there was certainly a large contingent that wanted violent revolution. They wanted to try to overthrow the Romans, and eventually that attempt was made, um, and it did not end well for the Jewish people. Um, the problem Jesus faced is he wasn't doing the Messiah thing right. Okay, so he's he's doing these miracles. He's preaching in a way and 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 delivering a message that nobody had ever heard before. There was a great deal of power surrounding Jesus, a great deal of authority, not you know, not positional authority, but personal authority. And people recognized him at least potentially as being the Messiah. But when he started talking about, you know, take up your cross and follow me, and he started, uh, you know, riding in on a donkey and not on the white horse, a lot of things were signaling that maybe this wasn't quite the kind of Messiah that they had in mind. And so that alienated a lot of people. In fact, I kind of theorized that Judas betrayed Jesus as a way to force his hand. I've, I've read in numerous places that Judas may well have been of the zealot persuasion. And, uh, you know, he may have 
turn Jesus in, hoping that that would force Jesus to fight. Um, Peter was ready to fight. You know, he was lopping off ears. Uh, so there was that undertone going on here of, of the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. It's religious, but it's also political. And you can't lose fa- uh, you can't lose track of that because it's very important to understand that as you analyze what happened as Jesus was being um, tried and ultimately crucified. So let's go to Matthew 27. We're going to use primarily the Matthew account of the trial because that's what I've been studying. Um, Matthew relies heavily on Mark, so they're very similar um, with with some changes. Uh, and also Luke. John's a little bit different, but but you'll find uh, basic harmony in all of these um and on all of these accounts. So Matthew 27, starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And I, and I think this indicates the accusation that the the Sanhedrin was bringing. They're going to the Roman governor saying, Look, this dude is saying that he's a king, and that is a, a direct threat to Roman authority. Um, it, 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 it is undermining uh, the Roman political system. And of course, that would be a grave concern to a Roman governor. Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So basically, he just said to Pilate, yeah, it's it's as you say, but he didn't try to defend himself against the accusation that the Jewish officials were bringing. And uh, so then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. So, you know, your impulse as is somebody being accused is to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, defend yourself, right? Jesus didn't defend himself. He was silent. And that really impressed Pilate. I think Pilate saw a glimpse of Jesus's integrity in the way that he was handling these accusations. Going on, verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to a to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate understood the dynamics. He understood, he understood that, that Jesus wasn't really any threat here. He recognized that pretty quick. So he's like, I'm going to try to wiggle my way out of this because he's a good politician. And uh, and he recognized that the, the, the Jewish officials were basically jealous, right? They felt like Jesus was getting way too much attention. They were trying to get rid of him. So next we have a little parenthetical aside in verse 19. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So his wife's like, I'm dreaming about this dude. He is just, you you don't want to get involved in this. Verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Now, this is important. The chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude. So you've got this religious political group, the people in power, and they're basically manipulating the crowd. They convinced the crowd that, hey, you you want to get rid of this Jesus. We want Barabbas. 
So the governor answered and said to them, which one of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. Now, isn't democracy great? I mean, this is democracy in action, right? It's the will of the majority. It's collective consent. Never mind that the consent was drummed up by the political leaders themselves. But ultimately, this is what the crowd wanted. And it's what the crowd got. Now, ironically, the majority chose to pursue a political path. This is important. Remember, there's a religious aspect, a spiritual aspect to this whole drama. There's also a political aspect to this whole drama, and they play together. The crowd was faced with the choice. Do you want this Jesus Messiah who's talking about love your enemy, love your neighbor as yourself, be merciful, all of these strange things, or do you want Barabbas? who is actually representative of the political solution. Barabbas represented an earthly kingdom, and their insistence on releasing Barabbas instead of Jesus symbolizes this choice. Now, according to Mark, Barabbas was a, quote, insurrectionist who committed murder during an uprising. So basically, he was a political rebel. He was an insurgent. In the book of John, the term used to describe Barabbas literally means, quote, one who takes booty. And Josephus constantly applied this very same word to the zealots. The word biblical commentary explains the significance here. Quote, from the Roman point of view, these were guerrillas who had to be exterminated. From the popular Jewish point of view, such men were heroic freedom fighters. He will have been a leader among those who sought to make way for the kingdom of God through violence. Let me read that sentence again. He, meaning Barabbas, will have been a leader among those who sought to make their way for the kingdom of God through violence. This violent military overthrow of Rome. Again, there's a spiritual significance here because the the, the Jewish people believed themselves to be the people of God. So they're reestablishing God's kingdom, Israel, on earth through military might, through violence. In other words, Barabbas was the personification of political resistance against Rome. He represented a continuation of the world's system of force and violence. Now, what did the Jews choose? They chose Barabbas over Jesus. They chose to follow the path of politics and violence, hoping for the overthrow of Rome instead of the path of peace, Jesus being the Prince of Peace. They traded the kingdom of God for an earthly kingdom. The Jews put an exclamation point on this choice when the chief priests proclaimed to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. That's in John 19.15. That's pretty radical thing for a Jewish person to say, we have no king but Caesar. No, you have no king but God. That shows how much they had sold out. Again, from the word Bible commentary, quote, so it came about that the leaders of Israel, 
Their henchmen and the supporters of the popular hero asked for the release of one who had been guilty of violent political assault against the state, entailing murder, and demanded the death of him who came to realize the nation's true destiny through the almighty but peaceful divine love. Now, some 70 years later, Jerusalem would die by the very sword the Jewish leaders embraced. The Romans overran the city. They destroyed the temple. It was prophesied that the Jews would reject the Messiah and that the temple would be destroyed. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Again, this is a spiritual and political choice. They chose politics over the kingdom of God. They chose violence over peace. They chose Barabbas over Jesus. So, pretty significant, right? Let's go back to Pilate. Again, he was the quintessential politician. And this is what really strikes me. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew he had no basis to execute him. Thus, we have the whole drama here in a minute of him washing his hands. But Pilate also understood politics. And, you know, he quickly recognized that Jesus was no threat to Rome. Now, as I've already said, of course he was a threat to the Jewish leadership. The, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were both jealous of Jesus' popularity and following among the people. Basically, Jesus was stealing their thunder. I mean, he was doing things like healing on the Sabbath and hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, what good Jewish religious person does that? So they were envious and they were angry and they wanted to get rid of him. But what was any of that to Pilate? He was inclined to let Jesus go. In fact, he tried pretty hard to let him go. And I think his wife's warning disturbed him at some level. I think in his spirit, in his heart, I think he knew. I think he knew Jesus was innocent. I think anybody who honestly assessed Jesus, who honestly came into contact with him, recognized that this was an innocent man, that this was a godly man, that this man was different than any other man. I think people sensed that. And I think Pilate sensed it. If he had had any integrity, he would have declared Jesus innocent and let him go. And he actually did declare Jesus innocent, right? He said, I find no basis of charge against him. But he was a politician, and that is ultimately what drove his decision making. Politics drove his decision making, and I think we need to be wary of anybody in a position of power. Because we have to think about what is the basis for the decisions that they're making. Is it my best interest? Is it your best interest? Or is it their own best interest and their own power? Now, remember, at this point, the crowd's getting agitated. The chief priests and the elders had persuaded the multitudes, remember, that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Now, let's pause for a moment and think about crowds. When you read the narrative, it's really clear that their demands were completely irrational and baseless, right? Pilate asked them directly, what has he done? They didn't answer. They just yelled their slogan a little bit louder, crucify him. They weren't thinking. They didn't care about justice. Groupthink took over and they wanted the guy dead. And you know what? I see the same type of irrationality in political crowds, if not literal, 
at least figurative. Talk to a Trumper. Criticize Donald Trump, and you'll immediately get excuses and backlash and anger, even if you're right. I tell people all the time that Donald Trump was a prolific big spender. In the year before the pandemic, he was on track to run a $1 trillion budget deficit. This is before the pandemic. The only time we've ever had $1 trillion deficits before that was during the Obama administration at the height of the Great Recession. So Trump was as big a spender as Obama. But when I say that, people get mad at me. I'm criticizing Donald Trump. How can you do that? They won't listen to reason. They're just like this crowd. They're just like this crowd. They're they're chanting their slogan, MAGA, make America great again, or, you know, uh, build back better, or uh, hope and change. You know, we get the political slogans. The Jew slogans here was crucify him. That is the nature of crowds. Again, isn't democracy wonderful? All right, let's go back to Matthew. We're in verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see it. Now, the word tumult here uh, in in the Greek actually implies a riot, or at least the the beginnings of a riot. So the crowd was on the verge of, of getting violent. And the last thing that Pilate needed was a big uprising on his watch. So he did the political thing instead of the right thing. He wasn't going to risk a a riot or an uprising that he might have to put down. No, it's easier just to crucify the dude. Now, he just said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. So again, you recognize that Pilate recognizes that Jesus is not guilty. Jesus is innocent. Justice demands that Jesus be released. But Pilate ain't doing that. Pilate is going to follow the political path. We're going to go just for a moment to Mark 15, 15. At this point, Pilate says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, or one version that I've heard is willing to content the crowd. So right here, we see the power of the crowd on politicians. Politicians are going to do the things that they have to do to maintain their position of power and authority. They are looking out for number one. They're not looking out for you. They're not looking out for me. They're not looking out for your grandmother. They're looking out for themselves and the people that can enhance and increase their power. The big corporate donors, uh, the people that, that keep them in their position of power. That's who they're looking out for every single time. With very few exceptions, this is the nature of politics. Pilot is the nature of politics. 
I think George Mason summed it up perfectly. He said, those who have power in their hands will not give it up while they can retain it. On the contrary, we know they will always, when they can, rather increase it. That is the motivation and the driving force of politics. And Mason went on and he said, I fear the thirst of power will prevail to oppress the people. So this is a warning. Don't trust political power because it doesn't have your best interest at heart. It's not going to make the world better. Donald Trump's not going to make America great again. Joe Biden's not going to build back better. They're all full of crap. They're just trying to increase their own power, their own position, their own authority. It's all what's in it for them. Pilate crucified Jesus. He crucified an innocent man out of political expedience. That is exactly what happened. Now, of course, this was all part of God's plan, and I don't want to take away from that. It was part of the process of our salvation. This was foreknown. It was prophesied. But that doesn't absolve Pilate's responsibility any more than it absolves Judas of the responsibility of betraying Jesus. God took the actions of these human actors and wove them together to bring about his will. But this teaches us about where we should put our faith. We should be putting our faith in Jesus Christ, not Barabbas, not following the crowd, but instead following the Prince of Peace and doing what he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Jewish people rejected that on this day. Pilate certainly rejected it. And we saw the result. An innocent man crucified as a scapegoat for the crowd. The entire political process broke down here, right? Pilate failed because his principle was maintaining control and making sure his power and position remained secure. Democracy failed because the mob is unthinking and uncaring. You know, it's funny because politicians and citizens alike preach the virtues of democracy. You, know, you hear it all the time. Oh my gosh, this is a threat to our democracy. It's like it's some, some religious right or something, you know. And, uh, you, if you don't vote, then you don't have the right to complain. You, know, you, have to take, you have to take part in the holy sacrament of the church of the state. If you question the political dogma of democracy, if you question democracy, if you say democracy, eh, maybe not such a good idea, you'll find yourself labeled a heretic. And yet, nobody can tell you exactly why democracy is so great. You know, it's like just, it's just a given. It's a settled doctrine. I mean, why should the will of the crowd always triumph? I mean, in this case, it's very clear the will of the crowd brought about an unjust result. Happens all the time, right? Think about it. Go back to 1840. The vast majority of people in America thought slavery was just fine. That was the will of the crowd. That was democracy. Slavery was democracy. 
So why should the will of the crowd always triumph? How does the mere existence of a majority somehow create moral authority? Just because you have more people. If I get more people to say we should go to my neighbor's house and take all of his stuff, it doesn't make it right just because I have more people. It's absurd. The truth is it doesn't. A majority does not create any moral authority whatsoever. There's nothing sacred about the democratic process. At its core, it's nothing more than institutionalized mob rule. We saw the results in the trial of Jesus Christ. We saw the interaction between the people and democracy and these damn politicians. And throw the religious leaders in there as well. So that is my lesson from the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And I think it's very clear that we shouldn't be trusting the politicians. We should be trusting Jesus Christ, as I said. So with that, I think I'm going to wrap this up. Appreciate you listening to the show. Um, Be back to doing some interviews next week, I'm sure. Well, not sure, but I think I am. Um, I actually had an interview lined up for this episode, but things got kind of wonky with the hurricane and stuff. So it's going to happen, though. So we'll get to that. Uh, Again, check out my sponsor, Fox & Sons Coffee. Get 10% off of your order over 20 bucks. Um, Also, remember to support Godarchy over at godarchy.org. And uh, send me your money. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact me, you can do that at info at godarchy.org. And um, love to hear from folks. And I think that's all. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but obviously I'm not. And <laughs> it's just one of these episodes that just, I don't know, this ending seems abrupt. But I'm done, so we might as well end, right? So, again, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll be back here in a couple weeks. All right, it's time for the ending stuff. Again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Make sure you check out the website, godarchy.org. You can sign up to our email list there. We're also on social media, on Facebook, at godarchy.org. We're on the Twitters, at godarchy. And you can also find us on MeWe. Just look for godarchy. If you want to contact me, shoot me an email, info at godarchy.org. And of course, you can support the show. Just go to godarchy.org. Hit the support godarchy button follow the instructions again we really value your listenership that's all there's no more just listen to the music music